You may be seated. Or wait, well, sorry. Our scripture today comes from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Continuing on in this book of Colossians, we get into sections of ethical application, what we ought to do in light of what God has done for us. And so we see this in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. This is the word of the Lord. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. For there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so also so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word today, I pray that your spirit would enliven our hearts to receive it, that though there are challenging and difficult teachings in this text, texts that confront our sin, confront the ways in which we fall short, I pray that your spirit would work in us and apply these texts to our lives, that we would repent where needed, and that we would love you and serve you and love one another as you have called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. So in works of fiction, literature, film, other forms of storytelling, there is a common trope, a plot device called a life debt. You might see a situation where one character of the story is delivered by another from harm, taken out of a bad situation by the hero, 
and then afterwards believes that he owes his life to the hero, to the one who saved him. That person will freely and voluntarily help the hero with whatever he needs for the rest of the story. It's a pretty popular plot construction. And the fascinating part of it is, though it appears in a lot of non-Christian stories, secular stories and the like, it actually reflects a very Christian concept. The idea of owing one's life to one who has saved your life. As Christians, this is the situation we are in as it pertains to the salvation and deliverance that we have in Christ. It is really the archetype for this idea of a life debt. We were doomed, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. There was nothing that we could do for ourselves to come out alive. We were ransomed from a debt of guilt that we could never hope to repay on our own. And because of this great salvation we have, we owe a debt of gratitude to our Savior. So we are entering now the final major portion of the book of Colossians. In the first part, Paul encouraged the Colossians with the truth of the preeminent Christ and the deliverance and the rescue and the reconciliation that they have in him. Jesus Christ is God, and he is the head and source of our life. And then in the second section, Paul attacked the Colossian heresy, the syncretism and the legalism, this attempt to combine Christianity with other things, with Judaism and with paganism, to try to make this new thing altogether that Paul condemns in this letter. He critiques its insistence on laws, on ceremonies, on festivals, on binding beyond what God has bound. But now in this third section, having rejected the legalism, having rejected the false laws and commands, Paul turns to true practical application for the Colossian church. What are they really supposed to be doing? Because Jesus is God and preeminent over all, is God the Son, is the creator and ruler of all things, how are the Colossian Christians and how are we to live in light of this reality? And so here is the debt of gratitude that we and all Christians owe to our Savior. So Paul starts with some general exhortations and moves on into specifics. And we will treat these practical exhortations that we've seen in these first 15 verses of chapter 3 in three points. First, we look at the resurrection in verses 1 through 4. Second, we see a rejection, that is, things to be put off, things to be removed in verses 5 through 9. And then third and finally, we will look at Retention, things to acquire, things to hold on to in verses 10 through 15. So we have resurrection, rejection, and retention. And we will see that Christ's deity and his rule over all things compels his people to a new kingdom ethic that is not grounded in this legalism that we've seen before, but is grounded in love. So first, we see in verses 1 through 4, resurrection. Paul wants to remind the Colossian church where they've been before he talks about where they're going. 
And so look at verse 1. But if you were raised with Christ. So Paul has been through this book working out the implications of union with Christ. He has talked about this union in terms of a body and its head. Back in chapter 2, he tied this to baptism, this union with Christ in his death and resurrection. And then in our previous passage, we saw how our union with Christ in his death means that we have died to the regulations of the old covenant and to man-made legalism. So now this chapter focuses on the resurrection aspect, the new life that we have in Christ. Now this is distinguished from the so-called new life that the Colossian heretics were pressing. It was based on these legalisms, this false humility, this trying to do things not because they were actually what God required, but because they looked and sounded good to the outside world. But what Paul gets into here in this passage is the real thing, the true new life brought to those united to Christ. It's not grounded in self-righteousness, but in hope. Our salvation is going somewhere. It is taking us somewhere. And the glorious realities that have brought us near to Christ will inspire a new way of living. And so Paul, recalling our union with Christ and his resurrection, tells us to seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. So Paul is appealing here not only to the resurrection, but to Christ's ascension, which is an often overlooked doctrine of our Christian faith. Christ has ascended into heaven, and this has implications for us. So first, bodily speaking, Christ is not here. There is a sense in which Christ is absent from us. This is for why, for instance, over and against Lutheranism, Reformed theology does not confess the bodily presence of Christ in the elements of the Lord's Supper. Rather, a spiritual presence. While Christ is absent in body, he is still present by his word and spirit. But second, there is also a sense where by our union with Christ, we are already present with him in heaven. We have, by virtue of Christ's death and resurrection in which we share, entered into this new creation life. Now there are the already and not yet aspects of this new life. Already, by virtue of our union to Christ's resurrection, signed and sealed for us in baptism, we have begun eternal life. And yet it is not yet, because we're still here in this fallen sinful world with mortal bodies and physical death looming and dealing with the trials and struggles of this life. While we are with Christ in spirit, we long to be with him in body where he is. And that Christ has ascended into heaven is a sure promise that because we are united to him, we will go where he has gone. Christ is in heaven now representing us, interceding for us before the Father, and eventually he will return to take us to him. But though bodily absent, Christ has not left us alone. When Christ prepared to depart, he promised the Holy Spirit which is the portion and inheritance of all believers. We have God's Spirit within us to illuminate the Word to us and guard and protect us in this life. 
So Paul exhorts in verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Because you are already living this new creation life, think consistently with that. Don't think as you did before. Paul will get to more of the specifics in the coming verses, but for now he's laying out the grounds, he's laying out the reasons. Because you have a new life, live a new life, and think new thoughts. Verse 3 grounds this in the gospel. For you died. Your old life is over. You're not the person you were before and without Christ. The old man, driven by sinful desires and actions, is no more. He was put to death with Christ. Then in the next part is the good news. Your life is hidden with Christ. You have eternal life, abundant life, life unending in Christ. And it is already, it begins now. So verse 4 then describes the not yet, the future glory that is coming. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So what we see here is the hope in which we ground our love, in which we ground our life. So as Paul is preparing to teach practically concerning Christian obedience, he wants to make sure it comes from the right place and is done for the right reasons. In the previous chapter, he was criticizing the Colossian heretics for their legalism. They wanted to obey to make themselves good, clean themselves up, make themselves seem righteous. But what is the hope in that? You'll never be able to completely clean yourself up in this life. And even if you did, so what? What does it matter if you die and that's it? So Paul's vision of the Christian life is grounded in the person and work of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit, and the eternal hope that we have because of this. It's not obedience to be saved, but obedience because we are saved, because we are delivered, because Christ has fulfilled all righteousness for us and died to cleanse us from sin and raised us to a new life. But this doesn't mean that obedience doesn't matter. Some Christian teaching chafes at any mention of obedience. They read passages like Colossians 2 and its condemnation of legalism, and they become so allergic to legalism that they minimize our responsibilities to God to virtually nothing. We have Colossians 2, but we also have Colossians 3. We are, as Christians, to obey what God has commanded us. But just as critical to the what of obedience is the why. Are we obeying to show how good we are, to be righteous of our own efforts, because of some effort to save ourselves, or are we obeying because we truly love this God who has done such great things for us? Christian obedience is grounded in love. It is summarized in the two great commandments, to love God and to love neighbor. Those further explained in the two tables of the law, the Ten Commandments. Now this involves commands, but the reason behind why we follow these commandments is very important. It's not to earn anything, 
But because of the new resurrection life, we have already been given as a free gift through the work of Christ. So having looked at this first point, resurrection, we now turn to our second point, rejection. Having grounded our Christian life in the realities of the gospel, in Christ's death and resurrection, and the hope that we have of glory, Paul gives us, in verses 5-9, through some negative law, some prohibitions, things that we must turn away from, things that we are to reject. It's not just that we need to resist or keep distance from earthly things. Paul puts the rejection in the strongest terms possible in verse 5. Put to death. Kill them. Take them out back and shoot them. These sins have no place in the new life. And yet this is not a neat one-time occurrence. It's an ongoing practice. It's a habit. We have to be continually putting these things to death. We don't get rid of them once they're gone. As long as we live in this fallen and sinful world, it's something we have to continue to do. Heidi and I were... Oh, sorry. We're very glad to have moved into the house uh, here on the church property. But one of the issues that we've had since moving in, and you see it here in the church too, is with flies. The house had sat empty for a few months, and when people move out, flies move in and they try to take over. Now we have taken some steps to try to remove the flies and mitigate their presence, Um, We even set off some foggers right after we moved in and removed thousands of flies in one effort. But ever since then, some of the flies still appear. They keep coming in. We have to keep killing them or they're going to take over again. And this is what our sin is like. As long as we live this life on earth... We will have to constantly be putting earthly things. We will have to constantly be putting sin to death. We have to put to death these members which are on the earth, as the text says. These parts of us which still cling to sin. That still cling to the patterns and ways of this world. In the old life, the Colossians had used their members for evil. But they are no longer to do so. And neither are we. Sin is not to rule in any part of us. And Paul lists several sins here. Now, as you read this list of vices, so you have fornication, sexual immorality, you have uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. There is a working from the greater to the lesser. Sexual immorality The word here can be used to describe a wide variety of sins, all sexual in nature. It's largely concerned with evil deeds of a particular heinous kind. But these other sins listed here deal more with sinful thoughts, sinful desires, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. So like Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount, Paul here is associating sinful desires with sinful action. It's not enough to not commit adultery. It's still sinful to lust. It is not enough to not murder. 
It is sinful to hate your brother and to insult him. None of these things have a place in this new life. There is a present controversy now that's sweeping through much of the church as the culture constantly pressures the church to compromise on homosexuality to say that homosexual desires are not themselves sinful. It's just acting upon them. We can't go there. We see very clearly in Scripture that sinful desires are themselves sin. The last vice listed here is covetousness, to which Paul adds an important tag, which is idolatry. Covetousness, sinful desire, is the root of all other sin. Sinful actions come from sinful thoughts. We steal because we want what is not ours. We lie because we want a reputation that we have not earned. We commit adultery because we lust. We murder because we hate. We dishonor authorities because we want power for ourselves. But at the end of the day, it all connects back to idolatry. Anytime we sin against God's law, we put something else in God's rightful place. When we desire something against God's commands, we declare that we would rather not have God ruling over us as he did, as he does. We think that we know better. Idolatry is not just worshiping statues or participating in false religions. It's any rebellion against God's rule. In fact, idolatry is often just worshiping ourselves and the things that we want and deciding that that is more important than faithfulness to Christ. And in this, all who sin, whatever the sin, are idolaters. And for this, as we see in verse 6, the wrath of God is coming. For these sins, even these sins of thought, the ones that never manifest themselves in any external way, God will judge the world. He will judge the sons of disobedience. Now this is not unjust by God. For as we have seen, all sinners are idolaters. They have rejected God's word and his authority and his very godhood. And God will reject them and eternally condemn them. And Paul tells the Colossians in verse 7 that they once walked and lived in these sins. But in verse 8, in the new life, we must put all that away. All the sins previously mentioned and any others. In fact, Paul goes on to give another list of sins. These are particularly related to how we speak. Anger. Now from this, some will say that all anger is sinful. One problem with this is that Jesus, who was without sin, was at times angry. For instance, when he went into the temple and in a rage, he purged the money changers and traders from the court of the Gentiles. He drove them out with whips. He turned over tables. So there is such thing as righteous anger. Righteous anger is to be zealous for what God wants. So the reality of sin, for instance, may and should make us angry. However, the anger which is sin 
is more the anger which Jesus condemns in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.22. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. This is an anger that is selfish, self-driven, hurtful, and hateful after our own agenda instead of God's. Our employers, friends, family, spouses, children don't give us what we want, So we're angry at them with a jealous and covetous, which remember is idolatrous, wrath. And this wrath we must put to death. Wrath is to have a quick temper, a lack of self-control, to lash out against those who we believe have wronged us, to take our own vengeance, to punish people, perhaps physically, perhaps verbally, perhaps emotionally. This wrath is sin, and it is not to characterize the new life. Put it to death. Malice. This is the desire and intention for evil. To wish evil upon others. To delight in evil instead of rejoicing in the truth. This too we must put to death. Blasphemy. To break the third commandment. To misuse God's name to speak ill of what he has said and what he has called good, put it to death. Filthy language, to use cursing, to speak without discretion, to use crude and dirty humor, to partake of these things when others do them, put it to death. And then finally in verse 9, lying. Do not lie to one another. Do not slander one another. Do not undermine the truth. Do we ever lie to one another? Do we stretch the truth to make ourselves look better? Do we gossip? Do we spread falsehood or unverified things about other people? We all do. But we are called to put it to death. These are real and godly and applicable commands. To expect the keeping of these commands is not legalism if it's done from a heart of thankfulness to God for what he has done. The one problem that we quickly see is that we don't and can't on our own initiative do these things perfectly. We still live in this fallen and sinful world. We still have our sin nature with us. And if we're just trying to do these things ourselves to be the good people, We're really no better than those parroting the ceremonial laws and regulations back in chapter 2. But as I said before, the difference is the reasons. Since you have put off the old man with his deeds. So because we are united to Christ, the old self has died. It's dead and gone, and the practices of this old self are being put to death with it. Instead, we are being renewed by the Spirit. And we'll look at this in our final point. We've looked at resurrection and rejection, and now we turn to reception. Having put off the old man, we are putting on the new. But this is not just an act of our own strength or will. I title this point reception because we don't create it in ourselves, but rather we receive it. Look at verse 10. 
and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. This is our sanctification, the work by which God the Holy Spirit renews us and makes us holy. We're not renewing ourselves. We're not handed the new man suit that doesn't quite fit and then told to squeeze into it. No, the Holy Spirit is actually making those who belong to Christ into this new creation, transforming them. As we are sanctified, we desire less to do these evil works and instead to do new and different things. Now, one thing we are to put on is Christian unity. This is a part of the new creation that we see in verse 11. It is a removal of the divisions that once characterized us. Distinctions that existed before are obliterated for the one people of God united under Christ the head. So we see here that there is neither Greek nor Jew. Now imagine hearing this in Paul's day as a Jew. Those versed in the ways of the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, the people of God were essentially confined to Israel and nowhere else. There were some mechanisms and cases where others were brought in. But in general, Israel was separate from the nations. The other nations were pagan. They were lost. They were hopeless. But now Paul is saying that distinction is over. God is drawing in a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation for his name. We read that there is neither circumcised nor uncircumcised. There is no distinction to be made in the church over the ceremonial law, as we looked at last time. All this stuff about eating certain foods and observing certain days and the like. There is to be no more division over that. He even mentions barbarians and Scythians. These were the more uncivilized and, as the name implies, barbaric people of the day. There were those outside of Greco-Roman culture. But even they have a place at Christ's table. Slave and free. To understand how revolutionary this was, you'd have to realize how prevalent slavery was in the first century and what being a slave meant. We sometimes lose sight of that as we live in a world, in a country where slavery has been abolished. But slaves were property, not people. They didn't really have any standing. They had no rights. They really were denied personhood. And yet in the church, masters and slaves worshipped together. In Christ, who is all in all, these distinctions go away. They don't matter anymore. We are no longer to divide along ethnic and racial lines. We're no longer to divide along cultural lines. We do not divide along occupational or economic lines. When we come into God's house as God's people, we are one body connected to Christ our head, sharing in one Lord, one hope, one faith, one baptism. So beware then those who would try to deny this unity created in Christ. We live in a day where racial tension is once again on the rise. The evil and Marxist philosophy of critical race theory seeks to divide what God has unified once again along racial and ethnic lines under a false narrative 
claiming racial reconciliation. But this is a great threat to the peace and purity of the church in our time. The culture demands we embrace it, but faithfulness to God, faithful to biblical teaching like we see here in Colossians 3, makes it clear that we cannot go with the world in this. Instead, we together, a people comprised across all of these dividing lines that Paul has listed, affirm what Paul says, that Christ is all in all. Christ is God. Christ is our Redeemer. And in Him the old man is dead, and we are new persons being made into a new people. But not only do we, being renewed after Christ's image, put on unity, we put on other things as well, as we see in verses 12 and 13. We put on tender mercies. Now this stands in contrast to the malice and blasphemy and lying we are to put off. Instead of rejoicing in others' weakness, we show compassion. We help one another. For we know that we have been shown great grace, and we should be gracious to others. We put on kindness. We are not to be angry toward each other or harsh to one another or critical, but rather kind. We are to be humble. How many of the speaking sins we looked at above rise out of our pride? We slander because we think ourselves superior. We have malice or wrath because we are jealous of what others have or we're unsatisfied with how they treat us. We are told instead to put on meekness or gentleness. When someone does us wrong, we seek reconciliation and peace and gentle correction, not lashing out in anger or the condescension of pride. We are to be long-suffering. We are to be patient. We bear with one another's weaknesses. We do not rejoice in evil. We do not rejoice in evil, but grieve and seek to see people repent of evil. And as we see in verse 13, we forgive because the Lord has forgiven us. He has given us this new life, is making us into the new man. And with that has removed from us a debt we could never repay. So we should not be like the ungrateful debtor in Jesus' parable in Matthew 18, where after he was forgiven a lifetime of debt he could never repay, he went across the street and shook down his friend for a much smaller amount. Because we are forgiven much, we forgive much. We are to be a forgiving people, not harboring grudges, not fostering division over past offenses. Verse 14 summarizes and caps off this putting on with this. Above all these, put on love. Everything we have described in this text is an outworking of love. We are patient, kind, humble, and we put sin to death because we love God and love his people. We forgive one another because we love God and his people. We are loved much by God and we love in return. Love is this bond of perfection. It's basically the glue that holds all these things and holds us together. In verse 15, we see that this includes peace. We strive for peace and unity out of love for God and his people. The peace of Christ rules in our hearts. 
We have peace with God through Christ, as Romans 5.1 tells us. And so the fear and the burden of our sin has been relieved. And so we live in peace with one another. And we are thankful. These things we are commanded to do, they do not rise out of burdensome obligation, but joyful gratitude to God for who he is and what he has done. If we are in Christ... If we are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, we will desire to do what is pleasing to him. And when we fail, we repent. And when others fail us, we forgive. This is the new man. The new man is resting in Christ, but also working for his glory and for the love of his people. So we have seen today resurrection our new life as the new man in Christ, rejection, the old man, the things we should put to death, and then reception, the things that we should put on instead. This is, there is more of this new creation ethic, this life of the new man and following verses, which we will look at, Lord willing, the next couple of weeks. But for now, we are called to examine ourselves in light of this text. So first and foremost, are you in Christ today? Do you have faith in him? Do you believe in this gospel that Christ has fulfilled all righteousness on your behalf, that he suffered and died in your place, that he has been raised from the dead, and that in him you have righteousness and life? Because apart from that, nothing else I've said today really matters. Any of these good things you might do are Meaningless and vain without a love for Christ that comes by faith. Christ died to save sinners. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ today. And if you are in Christ today, this is a challenging text. We have many things we are told to stop doing and many things we are told to do instead. This is what our Lord desires of us and we should be diligent to do so. However, we also must recognize that we do not attain perfection in this life. We all fall short in various ways. So, the call for us today is to repent of our sins and to strive evermore to love God and love neighbor as we thought. And we should help each other along to this end. But also we recognize that this sanctification is a gift. The Holy Spirit is working in us and will be faithful to bring that work to completion. And so we can have confidence as sure as God himself, because God is the one who has saved us and he is the one who sanctifies us and does this work in us. So let us all then trust in Christ and live this new life in Christ, loving him and loving one another. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you've given us. We know that it challenges us and confronts us in many ways. We know that though in Christ we are given new life, we often cling to the old man and resist putting on the new. Pray that you would renew in our hearts a desire to do what you have asked of us, to know the great salvation that we have in you, and then to love you and love our neighbor as we ought as a result. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.